believing you have this kind of brilliant product idea that of course everyone will want and like not really focusing on anything real people and like real problems honestly what we did was we built this tool and then walked around to people and we're like do you want our tool do you want our tool what about you and it was a little bit like the kids book are you my mother (laughs) you know and like no no one is like no no one wanted the tool really and i realized that and so rather than having the initial rush of being like i've got a great idea i'm going to build something there's positive feedback loops. You feel like you're making progress when you're building, and then you like hit this wall because no one wants it. So in some ways, tried to reverse it, and so it's like, okay, we're actually not allowed to build anything at all. We're just going to talk to people. Welcome to In Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to In-Depth. Today, my partner Todd Jackson sits down with Christina Cassioppo, the founder and CEO of Vanta. Vanta is the leading automated security and compliance platform with thousands of businesses relying on the product to get compliant and stay that way. You may not expect the founder of a security company to be a former PM that taught herself how to code on the side, but that's exactly the type of greedy founder that Christina is. After toying with some initial ideas, like a voice assistant for biologists, she started building Vanta to solve a problem that didn't really exist at the time. The company started out in 2018 by trying to get SOC 2 security compliance for startups. But at the time, startups didn't really need to have SOC 2s. But Christina and her team saw the writing on the wall and that security was going to shoot up on the priority list even for the earliest stage companies and kept building even when plenty of smart people told them it was a bad idea. It's a gamble that paid off. Over time, the team nabbed some truly incredible early customers, including Segment Front and Lattice. Christina tells us exactly how she went from zero selling experience to pulling off big-time deals. She also pulls back the curtain on some of Vanta's more unconventional moves, like waiting until they acquired hundreds of customers to build up a proper website and instead relying almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow the business. She also pulls back the curtains on some of Vanta's more unconventional moves, like waiting until they acquired hundreds of customers to build a proper website, and instead relying almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow the business. Christina also shares her thinking behind the fundraising strategy, in which Vanta operated a cash flow break-even for years before going out and raising its Series A. I hope you enjoy Todd's interview with Christina and her sharp lessons on validating an idea, honing your pitch, and setting out on the quieter path to product market fit. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. Since Vanta was founded back in 2018, the company has been quietly expanding its corner of the global security and compliance market. So what first started as Vanta specializing in helping companies meet standards like SOC 2, HIPAA, and GDPR has grown into the leading trust management platform. So now you're a Series B company. You've raised over $200 million to date by some very big names, CrowdStrike, Sequoia, Kraft Ventures. 
And Vanta's customer base now numbers north of 5,000 organizations, including Quora, Modern Treasury, Autodesk, and companies like Lattice as one of its very first customers. Vanta's low profile has been, I think, in a way by design. In fact, I know you signed your first 600 customers or so without even a real website and only hired your first marketing role in late 2020. So in today's conversation, I really want to peel back the layers of Vanta's story. So to kick things off, Christina, I'd love if you could take us back to before the company was even an idea in your notebook. Could you tell us a bit about your background and some of the different pieces that pushed you towards the founder path? So I grew up in the Midwest. My parents were both academics. Two parts of that. One, they actually really liked their job. So growing up, I thought a job was something you really liked to do and you found really interesting. And second part is I thought I would be an academic. I didn't want to study what they studied, but it actually just seemed comfortable and familiar to me. So that's what I thought I would do until I was about 21, kind of graduating school. And then somewhere around there, I think I was in the process of actually writing an undergrad thesis in economics. I realized this was great, but there's other things to do. And so I kind of did a host of different things. Ended up getting really lucky in my first job at a school was at an early stage venture firm in New York City, Union Square Ventures. So got to work with Fred and Brad and Albert as they thought about large networks of engaged users. I think actually going into that, I maybe did want to start a company, but I definitely didn't say that out loud and or even in my head. It kind of seemed like, I don't know, I wasn't prepared, ready, the sort of person who started a company, whatever that meant. But at USV, I basically just spent two years meeting with founders, day in and day out, week in and week out. And it was really helpful because you just see all the different sorts of people who become founders and how different they are. And like, yes, there's commonalities around just getting up and putting one foot in front of the other, but there's so many different ways to do it. So that was just really helpful, honestly, really transformative. And I kind of got to the point where it's like, okay, I kind of do want to go start a company, but I want it to be a software company and I can't code. And I know lots of people do that, but I don't feel like I can. So I'm going to go take my bonus and go teach myself to code and teach myself to build products. And I spent the next two years or so doing that, made a bunch of things, none of which anyone has ever heard of, most of which were bad because just as you're learning something, you like have to make a lot of bad stuff before you start to make reasonable stuff. It's kind of the like Ira Glass quote where your taste outstrips your talent for a long time. Did that in some ways felt like I got to a better place of like I learned how to make things, but was also at this funny place where I'd done some of it with one or two other people, but never really worked at a real company before. And so ended up joining Dropbox, which is where we cross paths as a product manager. And again, got really lucky, worked on a new product at the time, Dropbox Paper, trying to bring that to market. And that was just a whole different ballgame. The engineering product and design team was about seven or eight people when I joined for Paper in particular. It was probably about 70 or 80 when I left a couple years later. So got to like see what that is, see what a company is, see what marketing does, joking and not joking. Uh, I sort of didn't know. And so all of that was, you know, kind of ended up in Vanta in a lot of ways. Did you join Dropbox knowing that my next step after Dropbox will be to start my own company? And this is sort of the training ground for that in a way? Yeah. At that point, yeah, that was very much what I wanted. And I'd kind of at least gotten to like saying that to myself. Still a little bit less to other people, but yes. Talk about when you decided to leave Dropbox and how you started to think about the idea that would become Vanta. I think all of these things, they make sense in retrospect, but they're kind of complicated and they feel like swirly at the time. It was kind of from a product perspective, I think for me with paper, 
it became pretty clear to me that the best chance for paper success would be to go a lot closer to core Dropbox, whereas we had sort of been operating as a separate team. And that was really fun in a lot of ways, but I think not actually serving the product or its users very well. And so there was a piece there where it seemed like that should just change. And like, am I the person for that? Or like, ish. I think it was less clear to me, probably also to others. I think there was also a part where just kind of impatient was like, okay, I feel like I've learned a lot. Let me go see if I have or not. I want to go try this thing. In some ways, there's no time like the present. Let me see what happens. Was Vanta your first idea or did you have other ideas kind of in those early days? No, there were a host of a slew of terrible ideas. To take you back, this was late 2016. At the time, there was actually also an AI chatbot voice assistant Alexa wave. One of the initial ideas, sort of the framework was what new technologies are opening up new opportunities and what are you good at? So I was like, okay, well, voice is new and maybe opening stuff up. You just got an Alexa. It seems kind of cool. I guess I know things about team collaboration after a couple of years at Dropbox. So can you make your voice assistant for work and spend some time on that? Made the you know meeting recorder that records all your meetings and transcribes them across the company. And it sounds kind of neat. Some people really want it. I think actually your median person doesn't want that product at all. There's a bunch of very real reasons for that. Also, at the time, the technology just like wasn't that good. We made a microphone. The joke was a microphone that dumps things into a Slack channel. It mostly dumped nonsense into a Slack channel. This wasn't even usable. And we're also like, look, we're not AI engineers. We're not going to make these models really good. You know, Google was like the type of stuff like Google at the time will, but then that's for every startup. And so what's our differentiation again? The pieces didn't fit together. The true low point, it's really funny now, but we were trying to narrow in on a use case. Because the general startup one just didn't seem like it made sense. And ended up making a voice assistant for biologists in a lab. You know, it kind of makes sense. They're like doing things with their hands. They have gloves. They have chemicals. They need to do conversions. It's kind of like cooking. But that was kind of a moment where we like went, we found a lab. We like shipped them a microphone. We made them an iPad app. In some ways, they were really excited because like no one makes software for biologists in labs. But also like this was not a real, the market for this was like, the size of my thumb. We didn't actually know anything about biologists. You'd like go tell somebody that's what you're working on. And they look at you like, what are you doing? I'm glad we didn't pursue that one. Okay. And so then I think at some point you thought about, hey, what about the security space? What was it that was drawing you to security? It was in some ways just naive interest. This seems exceedingly important and increasingly so security on the internet. You're reading more and more about breaches. It's eroding trust in software. As somebody who sort of grew up in software, like I really like software. I believe in the transformative power of new tools. But if no one trusts them, then it doesn't matter. And honestly, actually back to Dropbox, Dropbox had an incredible product security team. And so just spending time with the people on that team, really compelling, really articulate, talking through the problems that they had in their workflows and the high points and their low points of their job. There's also just a bit of like, I like spending time with those people. So if you're going to go think about product development and then ongoing customer relationships, I think it is just not necessary, but it's really nice if you love spending time with your users. So it sounds like it was just really fun and you enjoyed talking to security folks. Did you find that when you were researching the security idea, you spent more time talking to potential customers than you did with the voice idea? Absolutely. And I think just like made all the classic find an idea mistakes that I maybe could have enumerated to you in advance and then 
promptly made them. But I think of the voice idea, it was a bit of excitement about a technology, believing you have this kind of brilliant product idea that, of course, everyone will want, and, like, not really focusing on, I think, real people and, like, real problems. When you're in the, like, ideation or the creation stage with the voice thing, honestly, what we did was we built this tool and then walked around to people and were like, do you want our tool? Do you want our tool? What about you? And it was a little bit like the kid's book, like, are you my mother? <laughs> you know, and like, no, no one is. No one wanted the tool, really. We did that for a bit. It didn't feel very good. Then kind of realized that. And so rather than having the initial rush of being like, I've got a great idea. I'm going to build something. Like you get your positive feedback loops. You feel like you're making progress when you're building. And then you like hit this wall because no one wants it. So in some ways tried to reverse it. And so it's like, okay, we're actually not allowed to build anything at all. We're just going to talk to people and talk to them until we have a lot of confidence and like a mental model of people and their jobs and the problems they might have and how we might solve it. And there were a couple of heuristics we used there too. So one was you had to keep having conversations with people until you could kind of predict about two thirds to three quarters of what they would tell you. So you had to like, again, keep having these conversations until like three quarters of it was stuff you already knew at least. And yeah, just really focus in on what was their day-to-day. Like some of the best questions we asked were asking people to like pull out their calendar and say, okay, look at all the meetings you had in the past couple of weeks. What were the best parts of the last couple of weeks? What were the worst parts? And again, just try to understand people and their problems. How do asking those sorts of questions get you to the point where you understand what they want? So slowly, I think, and iteratively. I think in retrospect, it sounds a lot cleaner, but if I think about... Literally doing that, actually, with the product security lead at Dropbox. It's one of the first conversations I had because it was so easy to get to that person. And what he told me when we looked at his calendar was like, look, the best parts of my weeks are when I get to work with product teams on security issues. And sometimes I embed with them. He had to do this with us at paper. But it's like I can work with the PM and the engineering managers and the engineers and like get the right stuff prioritized and fixed. That's the best part. The worst part is when I have to like pull together reporting on the things I've done for my manager or for executives or sometimes get on the phone with customers and explain what we do. And some of that's nice, but then you do it for the fifth time that week and that gets like pretty dull pretty quickly. You kind of get this, okay, like this person really likes doing the work. They fundamentally like their job. But there's this work about work or, you know, demonstrating that you've secured things part that was kind of tedious and annoying. That's just as an example of something we got out of those conversations. You kind of keep pushing on that and, you know, talk how we got to compliance, but just like this very early glimmer of something there. Got it. And so what were the clues that you were hearing that eventually led you to sort of this automating SOC 2 idea that you became known for? One was when I went out and, you know, did all these interviews or a couple audiences. One was like co-founders, security folks, if they had them, engineering leaders, eventually sales leaders. And so what that happened is because you kind of go to like technical co-founders and roughly would say, hey, what are you doing for security at your startup? And they would generally look quite guiltily back and say like, not that much. And I wish it would better. And like, please don't write this down. Totally cool. You know, why don't you do more? Sounds like you want to do more than you were doing. Like what's going on? And I think the answers were always often quite reasonable. There's a little bit of, I don't know what good looks like, or I don't quite know what to do. But there was actually more like, it's just really hard to prioritize. I can go and spend a bunch of time securing things and do stuff I think would be quite good. But it's like, I don't really know how to measure, right? I'm measuring it by the absence of a breach. But also, we're a small startup and our problem is no one knows us, not that everyone's trying to hack us. 
or I can go spend my time building a feature that a customer wants in order to give us our first revenue. I'm going to do the latter kind of all the time. So we heard that a bunch. And actually, that was initially kind of discouraging because you're like, oh, this is why there aren't security companies for startups. Because even if it's a good idea, it's an easy to use product, you're still running up against this prioritization hurdle. And there's actually a phase of that. We kind of kept talking to people. And there was actually a really transformative moment when I walked into Figma. And Figma at the time was about probably 30, 35 people. And I was talking to one of their infrastructure engineers, kind of expecting to have the same conversation. Have you already had the conversation you're about to have, Bain? I was talking to him and I was like, okay, so what do you all do for security? And this person just listed like 12 tools and a bunch of best practices and just kept talking. And that's one of like, why? <laughs> Who are you and why? And the answer at the time was they had just signed Google, which is like a huge deal. And as part of selling Google on Figma, Google had sent over this long questionnaire. Do you do this practice? Do you, you know, encrypt this? Are you secure in this way? And the answers were mostly no's, but they didn't want to say no. So they just turned that into their roadmap and just did everything so they could credibly say yes. And that was this moment of like, oh, wow. Like, of course you did. And you managed to like align securing your company with growing your business. This sounds quite promising. That's sort of what created the urgency for them. Yes. And this engineer, certainly engineers, we talked to, they kind of, again, had an idea of what to do. It gave them a prescriptive list and more so just like the organizational mandate to go do it. So that spurred this like, okay, so questionnaires, what are these? And go look at the questionnaires. Can you standardize them? Can you automatically answer them? There's some stuff there, but then we're like, mostly you just don't want to get these because they're so bespoke and custom. So how do you not get a questionnaire? You know, like, oh, compliance certification, SOC 2, and then what are those? And so it all kind of built in a way that, again, makes a lot of sense in retrospect, but just to like level set, that process was probably three or four months of these like conversations. So it did not happen overnight. And, you know, two months in, you're sort of like, I'm spending a lot of time on this, but I don't even know if it's going to turn out into anything or not. But the aha moment, it sounds like, was if I can help these companies unlock business and sell to bigger customers, that's a real motivator. And that's what gets them to think about security and doing all these things. Yes. There's just this moment of, okay, now we're not sure we can build a product here, but just for a moment, suspend disbelief. Say you could make a, like, press a button and get SOC 2. Lots of people will pay to press that button. If you can do it, this seems like a thing that people will want. Okay, got it. So you have this strong sense of validation that if I can make a button that says you get SOC 2, there's demand for that. So then how do you go trying to figure out if you can actually make that work? So then you're like, okay, well, what is a SOC 2? Then it was just kind of this iterative prototyping where step one was go get every SOC 2 you can get your hands on and read them all. So got about a dozen of them and compared them and tried to break down. You know, you hear these are all different and everyone's unique and you need a consultant. And are they actually different? For the folks who haven't seen one, Christina, what does a SOC 2 like even look like? Okay, so very practically, it is like an 80-page PDF that lists out what in compliance speak is a control, but is like the security practices of a company. And it says, hey, as a company, we have these practices. And an auditor, in this case, an accountant, has come into the company, made sure we actually have that practice, like we do what we say, and written some detail on how they do it. 
and, you know, codified all this up in this long PDF. But that's roughly what it is. So you're attempting to now productize this, see if we can generate this somehow automatically. Correct. And when we went and talked to consultants and auditors, they were like, well, you can't do that because every report is unique. And, you know, I think we were kind of software people and we're like, well, of course, but do they have to be unique? If we're talking about security practices here, yeah, there's some nuance. There's also best practices. And say Dropbox has a very different business than Salesforce, say, too early SOC 2s, I read. But should they actually protect customer data differently? It's not evident. So I think there's some bit of outside-in thinking here of saying, well, historically, these have all been very bespoke. How bespoke should they be? especially at the earliest stages of a company building one of these out. Okay, got it. So what was the first MVP? So the first MVP was we went to a company segment, actually, where we knew some folks. You found some really good early customers. I think they knew us and we didn't really know SOC 2 that well yet, but we're going to work really hard. And so it was much more of a bet on that. And what we basically did was interviewed their team figured out what their SOC 2 should look like and how far away is it. So we made them a gap assessment that was like very bespoke and customized to them that they could then plan a roadmap against if they wanted. And honestly, the test there was one, can we deliver them something that's credible? And two, did they find it credible? We are learning here. And that actually went well. And so then we moved to Front, a second company. And that test was, can we basically give them segments gap assessment, but not tell them it is segments? We use the same controls, the same rules and best practices. Go to the interviews, see where front is. It's customized in that sense. But this is kind of pushing on the, can you productize it? Can you standardize the set of things? So that was like, well, can they tell it was actually for another company? The rubric is the same. They couldn't. And then actually what happened was a former Dropbox coworker emailed, <laughs> it was a pretty good email, which was basically a version of, Hey, I hear you've become SOC 2 consultants. That's super strange. Two thoughts. One, we should get a drink because, like, what are you doing with your lives? Two, can you come do this for my company as well? So you're sort of like, oh, this is great. Now we can start building some of this. So for these initial test runs, you were doing this all by hand. Oh, yes, very purposely. And sort of thinking, okay, we'll be able to write code to do this eventually, but it's all by hand at this point. I mean, it's some hubris and we were like, look, we can build whatever we want hubris in that. The hard part is building something people want. The easy part is writing code. Focus on the thing people want, and then you get to go write all the code you want to write, hoping someone will actually use it. Christina, at this point, you've worked with Segment and Front. Did you have a hypothesis on who your ideal customer profile would be? And were you learning about what that profile looked like the more folks you talked to? We were. And I would say, yes, a hypothesis, although kind of weakly held. So at the time, this is not true today, but back to, you know, 2017, companies that were like under 500 people, say, did not get SOC 2s at all. We talked to people who had SOC 2s. That seemed kind of hard. So it tended to be like a couple hundred person companies would have conversations with much smaller companies where there was a lot of education. They didn't really know what a SOC 2 was to the extent they knew. They were like, that just sounds like a thing Dropbox does, but no one else does. Also talk to compliance teams at really big companies to kind of learn about the market. I guess weak hypotheses around it being a several hundred person company, but actually just a lot of take the intros you can get or get into the companies that you can get into and ask a lot of people and 
sort of flare out to try to cover a bunch of ground and figure out where it's really landing. So you've done some of these initial tests that were promising. You're talking to a bunch of folks. You get the email from a friend saying, can you do this for my company? When did you sort of have the internal confidence like, okay, it's time to start coding. Let's build a real product here. Kind of after that. And I think it was like, again, we had our gap assessment spreadsheet that we'd given to two companies and actually this third one. It seemed useful to all of them, which was in some ways kind of shocking to us, but it seemed useful to them. The joke was this was something people were talking about over the weekend that people were hearing about we were doing this. And, you know, you can make jokes about San Francisco startup people and the fun they have on the weekends. But that also seemed kind of rare that people were hearing about it. And so it felt like there was something in that, too. Okay, And then when did you decide to apply to Y Combinator? After all that, we'd started building and probably overly thought about that decision. but. What we were really thinking about was, we're obviously a startup. We're going to try to start selling to startups. The joke that's also very true is the last thing I sold prior to Vanta was Girl Scout cookies. No selling experience whatsoever. So YC would be helpful for what I now know is prospecting, but just like getting early customers and users. So while there's some trade-offs to doing the program, it would be worth it for that early customer momentum. I know that Lattice was one of your first customers, too. Did that come sort of via YC? It did. And honestly, what was really helpful was, you know, got into YC. That's probably known. They have Bookface, this internal hacker news that has a bunch of information on prior companies. And so just had our partners go through those company lists with me and help me prioritize who might need a SOC to that I could reach out to. And then what I generally found was YC founders are just extraordinarily kind to one another and would take meetings with early companies even when it wasn't totally clear they had a business interest to do so. So just tried to do that as much as possible. And what did you learn during those early founder-led sales conversations where you said, you know, you hadn't sold anything but Girl Scout cookies? What's it like to learn how to do sales on the job like that? You kind of feel like you're terrible at everything until you slightly get better. So a couple thoughts. One, I very much sold like a PM. There's good and bad to that. But of a, let me show you what I built. And also I will ask you a million questions. Because I'm kind of curious and I'm building a model of the user. Oh, by the way, would you like to buy this? So the joke was I would do really deep discovery and then like sometimes forget to send the DocuSign. Because I was like so into the discovery. I think it helped to sell to other founders. They're like much more tolerant of that. It helped to sell to like technical people because they're much more, yes, I'd like to talk about your product. I don't want to be sold on some like nebulous solution that kind of inadvertently worked in my favor. I also think honestly founders were like, very candid with their feedback and especially one in particular. The way I was doing it for a while is I do a first call of discovery and asking them questions and then at the end kind of explain what Fanta did. Generally, the reaction I'd get was that sounds great. It sounds so great. You are lying to me. There's no way you were doing that. So we no, 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 let's do another call. I'll show it to you. And then I'd show them the product and they'd be like, oh man, it does what you said it would. Anyway, and I thought I was like, great, I have this two call sequence. I'm set. I'm so good at this. And then another founder, I did that too second call and he's like that should have just been one call like you talked all this i didn't believe you you showed it to me and believed you you could have just done that in 30 minutes and i remember hearing that and being like you are precisely correct i will do that going forward thank you so much so was that kind of a formula that you learned that you spend the first half really building up the promise of what this product can do and everyone's like okay i'll believe it when i see it and then you show it to him yes and I think it's also like I read all the sales books or I read all the medium posts. And so I'm sure I pulled stuff out of that. But that was early sales. There was a moment 
probably six months in or so where the calls started to get boring. Like you'd kind of done it so many times as a little routine and it would kind of work. And now it's a point where I started going to salespeople outside of Vanta and just being like, hey, this is the process I'm using. These are the words I'm saying. Here's conversion percentages roughly. Is this any good? You know, I like truly don't know. And kind of got that like outside perspective because I was just living in this world where I just like kept doing these things and it was working as well as it worked. And I didn't really have a baseline for what sales was. So what were some of the first big customer milestones you remember hitting and feeling good about or the first big product milestones in those early days? So on the customer side, there was a, everyone was one new customer a week and then you're two new customers a week. So it was just like honing it well enough and being able to like source, you know, outbound, but like I didn't really know that it was outbounding at the time. But there was some sort of velocity there and being able to look back and be like, oh, remember it was one a week and it's a big deal and now it's three a week. Wow. Did you get to three a week in those first six months or so? Probably two a week. On the product side, there's this bit where we're selling this product that got folks a SOC 2. But right in the early days, the obvious question is, well, how many SOC 2s have you gotten for people? And the initial answer is zero which doesn't feel great. And so certainly a milestone there, actually, for the very first audit. We were working with an auditor in Colorado. I flew to Colorado. I sat in that person's WeWork and, like, pulled information from the database for them just to make sure they had everything. And that was both the combo of product development and research and being like, what do you actually need? And, like, what does an audit actually look like? And just the commitment of, oh, my gosh, we've told this customer it's going to work. It needs to work. Okay. And so you submitted that and it worked, I'm assuming. It worked, yes. And then afterward, you tell that person they were the first one. Fantastic. So how many customers had you already signed at the time where you were just submitting your first actual SOC 2? Probably like 20 or just something frightening. Amazing. And I know kind of in those early days, you didn't go the normal route of building a fancy website to grab folks' attention. Was that an intentional choice or was it just sort of a byproduct of you being fully heads down working on product? Mostly the latter. I think in retrospect, we were probably a little too clever for our own good. But at the time, the thinking was, one, we want to make sure we can actually do this thing. And, you know, you go into your first audit with 20 customers. That's frightening enough. Do you really want that number to be 100? And then a little bit, too, of once it started working, realizing this was actually quite a deep and ripe area, whereas everyone still thought SOC 2 was this tiny niche thing that only big companies got. So feeling like, oh, no, this is actually much more, but it would be wonderful if everyone else thinks we're running down a dark alley for a while so we can get ahead here because we didn't want a bunch of copycats. And so there was honestly a little bit, too, of can we stay a little under the radar here, just have more time. It's like we realized this secret and we're going to just keep working on it before anyone else realizes Exactly. How long can we keep the secret? Yes. You said that once it really started working, when did it feel like to you that it really was starting to work? Late 2018, early 2019. I mean, to your point, you can see this in the Wayback Machine. We had this website that was basically like vanta.com, please go away, or here's an email. And people would actually email us. And there was a point where we were starting to get two or three emails a week through that. And you're just like, what is this? But it was like all word of mouth. It was all... And this wasn't intros. This was like somebody goes to vanta.com and gets to the like contact at address, basically, right? You're like, the hurdles here are real. So there was this moment where you're like, oh, that should not be happening. So that's where you're like, wow, people are just finding us. This is a good idea. Like, this is a winning idea. Yeah. 
Amazing. So what did your team look like at that stage? I mean, basically just like engineers and me, and then it became a like, well, what am I spending time on and how do you hire for it? So that was support actually first, because that seemed easier to hire for than sales. So it was like a support and a customer success and then sales and then some other roles. But it sort of became a like the very simple calendar analysis, like what is ticking up time and what feels like it's kind of stable or ready enough for someone who actually knows how to, you know, do the function to come in. So to start hiring these folks, I imagine that this is about when you raised money or maybe slightly before this. Talk about Vanta's fundraising strategy. Was it pretty easy for you to raise a seed round? And what proof points did you sort of need to have? The seed round is interesting. So we raised that coming out of Y Combinator in the spring of 2018. It was probably quote unquote easy in that it was like you had the momentum of coming out of YC. Honestly, we had backgrounds, fancy undergrad, like PM at Dropbox, like whatever. You kind of have all those unfair advantages. I think the thing that very much threw people for a loop was our pitch was we're going to go SOC 2 all the startups. And at the time, no startup got a SOC 2. I remember one GP meeting in particular where, you know, just like, we're going to SOC 2 all the startups and here's my deck and I'm this compelling founder and like, ha, pound the table and I'm done. And one of the partners literally turning to me and is like, sounds great, but this doesn't happen. You know, and you're like, oh, but it will, I promise. And like, you should make this bet, smart investor who just surveyed your portfolio and found that none of them are getting a SOC 2. Some people being like, you know, look, you seem strong. I'm still not sure why you're barking up this tree, but good luck. And I think that was a very reasonable read of the situation, given the information they had. What we had was we felt like, one, there was just going to be more and more pressure on software companies to prove their security. Felt like this one-way ratchet, more of that in the future, not less. And two, this insight of no startups would get a SOC 2 if it were easier, if it took them less time. So you're like, okay, the combo of more pressure from customers and taking down the time it takes to get one of these things, it's going to make more startups get SOC 2s. So that was our thesis. Some investors bought in, some didn't. Totally fair. And then it just happened much faster than we thought it would, honestly. When you get that kind of feedback from a VC where they're just like, this doesn't happen, this isn't going to work, does that affect your internal confidence level or were you already sold that like, no, this is going to work? No, I sold, but I think at that point, it's been a year validating the idea, basically. And so it's like, yeah, no, I've critiqued that part. I'm good. Here's what I see and here's what I believe and, you know, agree to disagree kind of. But I think because it spent so much time validating up front, it was like, oh, cool. I look forward to proving you wrong. And then if I recall correctly, I think there was a pretty long span of time between when you raised your seed round and then later when you raised your Series A. Is that because you were making revenue and so you're just sort of self-funding the business? Yes. So it was about three years and basically zero to $10 billion in ARR. And we were basically operating at cash flow break even. There were a couple parts of it. One was, but we were not very good at hiring, especially in retrospect. It was sort of this initial realization of one, I could spend time selling customers on Vanta and getting more revenue. I could spend time selling investors. And the selling customers and getting more ARR was actually working quite well. And the more ARR we had, the easier it made the investor conversations. So it's a bit of that, of realizing, sure, investors really like Series A's and a million dollars of revenue. They probably like Series A, they have $2 million of revenue, even more. So some of that realization, some of also being like, okay, well, what is blocking our growth? 
and it never feeling like cash was what was blocking our growth. It was like, oh, we aren't very good at hiring or not very good at setting up the great people we hire to do well. Definitely had our issues, but they didn't really feel like the issues that money was going to solve. So when you made the decision to raise the Series A, you've got $10 million in ARR at that point. Is that because you said, hey, it is time to pour gas on the fire, and if we had more capital, we could grow faster? So it was a little bit of that. It was a little bit of like the secret got out that this was, in fact, a very good business. As part of it, folks thought we were much smaller than we were, which didn't feel like a great position in the market to me. Some of it was you can operate at cash flow break even, but as you're growing your team, and our team was about 50 people at this point, the rough math the CFO gave me was, well, how many months of payroll do you have in the bank? And the break-even thing kind of works well until it doesn't. And so you're like, well, if we miss sales targets for two months and went out of business, I'd feel really dumb. We don't need to fly that close to the sun. When we were pitching candidates, you know, they'd be like, well, I'm not sure I want to join a seed stage startup. And then we'd be like, no, 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 we're actually it's like Series B startup. But it was just this whole back and forth that was like very confusing and annoying to everyone. So it just kind of felt like, okay, the principal stance here has outlived its usefulness. And so when you raised that series, does this coincide with the time where you start to evolve the go-to-market and invest more in market and get a proper website, all those things? Yes. Yeah. What did that look like? What were the changes that you wanted to make on the go-to-market side? Marketing was the last function and team that we started building, pros and cons of doing that deeply. But I think it was a website that really explained what we did, who we were, what we stood for, with a big piece of it. Inbound and word of mouth is to this day our best channel, but your growth goals can surpass that, especially when you have the sales motion. And so just starting to learn about who we should be selling to, who we should be targeting. That's an early moment where we thought revenue leaders would be an audience because they're the ones whose deals are getting blocked. Turns out it makes a lot of sense in theory wasn't really something that worked in practice, but just being able to experiment like that and not be like, oh, but how much money have you spent? The learning here is much more valuable. So I want to pivot, Christina. We've heard now these amazing stories of Vanta's early days into more things that you're thinking about now. So I know at your first user conference, VantaCon in November, you described Vanta as a trust management platform, which I think is a new term for me, a new term for most people. So what is trust management? And how are you evolving as you take on creating a new category? This is really fun. I'm recentering on a lot of the kind of founding pieces of Vanta that we just talked through. We're known for SOC 2, but I think SOC 2, again, it's sort of this tool that is used to hopefully demonstrate the security you have and build your business. And SOC 2 is one tool to do that. The reason we built the initial product around it is because it seemed like the closest thing to an industry standard, or it seemed like the thing that a company would start with. But it's not special otherwise. Now that we feel very confident in our ability to get SOC 2s, we've gone from that first one to literally thousands. It's really about, okay, what are the other ways a company is up-leveling their security and then demonstrating that to grow their business? I think there's a whole continuous piece here that's really interesting. We talked about SOC 2 as literally an 80-page PDF. That's one way to do it. If you ask an engineer, you know, how they think about security is probably not the PDF from nine months ago. So building things around trust reports and security status pages. Actually, I think there's a bunch of like really good incentives here. If you have your like security status page out in the wild, your internal security is probably going to be a lot better. And again, that just alignment of business growth and actually securing your company is really at the core of Vanta. 
one thing that I think we're seeing is given the current macro climate, security in a way seems to be recession proof or at least recession resistant with security hiring and spending going up. What do you attribute that to? And how do you think it will evolve over the coming months and years? We've seen this too amongst our customers and even some of the inbound demand. I think it's just a reflection of the world we live in today. The joke of like software 10 years ago, it was like, oh, you built something new. Here's my credit card information. Here's my address. And now we're just much more default skeptical. And again, I think to a fault almost, like, oh, well, if I give you this information, you're going to breach it all over the internet and this is going to be awful. And it just feels this kind of like one-way ratchet where we're more and more concerned about the security of data for reasonable historical reasons. And that's independent of any economic cycle. I know you started thinking about Silicon Valley startups, and we're going to talk to all the startups. These days, you have now over 5,000 customers. I think a thing that founders often think about is, if I start on one segment of customers, how do I expand to the next set? How have you thought about it over the years, and who are all the customers that you're serving now? It is fascinating. So similarly, it's like you start with the startups because it's what you know. You can walk into their offices and prototype with them. And I think in the early days, honestly, sort of believe you'll figure out how to get beyond them when the time has come. Like everything, some of it's magic and a lot of it's hard work. And I guess also like figuring out what you can do from a product perspective and where to really rely on partners. So we've actually started building out a partner program and equipping virtual CISOs and consultants with Vanta to go serve customers that we probably would not acquire or touch for a couple of years. Those tend to be brick and mortar businesses. That's starting to work now. It's kind of fascinating to watch because the conversation for the first couple of years is, well, would we ever serve a law firm? And now we do. We do via these partners. So that's quite exciting. I think it's also for breaking into enterprise, figuring out what the land and expand is or like what are the ways in. For us, acquisitions have been big. So Vanta customer gets acquired into a bigger company and that ends up being this great way to have this real depiction of here's what we do and here's why it's important and here's all these champions and using that to break into much larger companies than, again, we would be able to by trying to go into the front door. You mentioned acquisitions. I think that Vanta actually just made its first acquisition of a company called TrustPage. Will you talk about that a little bit? We did. It is a great 12, 13-person team and they were building these sort of real-time security status pages. So they would take questionnaire answers, policies, SOC 2 information, FAQs, and help companies package that up and show that off to build trust and say, hey, you know, here's all of our information. You can really dive into our security practices as a company and convince yourself we're going to do the right thing with your data. Really excited with the overlap. There's just like a ton of, honestly, vision and mission overlap between the companies. And it's like an incredible team that is building in a great space. And so we're just like thrilled to have them at Vanta and integrating that as a whole nother fun challenge for everyone. Amazing. So Christina, we'd love to wrap up just by asking you some personal questions about places where you learn, people that you learn from. So we'd love to know what people or what mentors did you learn the most from in your career and what did they teach you? I learned a ton from the folks at USV. Brad Burnham in particular as a partner there is an incredibly rigorous first principles thinker. And he was very good at making sure that, you know, investment hypotheses or company hypotheses just made sense truly and was very good at cutting to the root. A ton of focus on people and their incentives. 
which I think very much filtered into Vanta, right? This idea of why are you prioritizing security because of the business incentive? And that's why. But I think a lot of that thinking came from Brad. More personally, he was also just very good at pushing me. Christina, do you often get feedback that your ideas are poor? Do you get feedback that you don't share your ideas enough? Worry less about if you're correct and just start saying things and see what happens, which was very pointed and very well placed as well. It sounds like you remember it very clearly. That means it was good advice. Any books or resources that you'd recommend for founders, books, blogs, newsletters, places that you learn? The one I actually do remember, I think, is the sales acceleration formula. Honestly, what I took out of that was sales is actually much more like industrial engineering. It's more like engineering than actual software development. I still think of software development as like a little bit of an art, whereas go-to-market sales, particularly for like a high-velocity SMB motion, is just a process to be optimized. And there's stages and there's conversion rates and like funnels. You kind of should think about that in spreadsheets and like write all those numbers down and then go optimize them all. And that frame took sales again from this soft skill that I definitely didn't have to something that I felt like I could like get my arms around and capture. So if you don't remember that book, it's another user research book. I think it is literally called the user research manual. They just had a bunch of questions and like open-ended questions around talking to people about their problems in a way that doesn't feel constructed or unnatural or pokey that I really enjoyed as well. So do you think if like an engineer who wants to be a founder, a product manager who wants to be a founder, if they read these two books, it would make them much better at figuring out what customers want and how to sell it to them? I don't know. I mean, they really work for me. They're also kind of like, how I think I probably just like them because it's how I think. I also read a bunch of books I didn't particularly like. And so, you know, if you can just like go through and find the ones that work for you, there are so many sales books out there. There probably is one for you. You just might need to try a bunch. Fantastic. Well, Christina, thank you so much. This has been an amazing story of Vanta's history and everything that Vanta has to look forward to. So really appreciate having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for the time. It's wonderful being here. 